0: welcome to the women's bible study podcast a ministry of sheridan house we continue today in the series god's masterpiece a study of women in the bible if you've missed any part of this series you can find it and many others online at sheridanhouse.org we hope you enjoy today's lesson it's just so wonderful to see so many of you that i haven't seen since last fall so i'm grateful to be here Um, Pammy Korn already reminded you about the 5K, but as we're thinking about the 5K, it brought back my mind to a story from years ago. Um, Many of you know I worked for a ministry called First Priority, and one year we were the recipient of the funds for an event called the Race for Faith, and so it was part of my job to be there to coordinate and, you know, arrive early. But my husband and I were either engaged or newly married, and we both decided that it would not just be a work event, that we would participate. We made that decision together. And so it's the day of the race and we're the first ones there, so we have our bib numbers and we're just setting up. And a good friend of ours came up and saw the line and it was like probably 1,000 people in, in the race and he was not there early and he was like, I don't want to wait in that line. And Mike said, oh, here, you can have my number, I'll get another one. Well, I don't know if you're seeing where this is going, but your bib number is obviously assigned to your name and um, Mike did not grab another number. He grabbed his fishing pole and went over to the lake. And so we, we weren't really planning on running together. So I'm running, and I'm like, that really looks like my husband over there. And, and surely enough, it was my husband. And um, so it, but that it gets better. Um, the person that he gave his number to is a very fit person, and they ran just about like a six-minute mile. So... Um, I love my husband dearly, but you wouldn't necessarily mistake him for a runner. So a good friend of his, um, his wife had run in the race, and he went online to look at the race results. She wanted to see her time. It was it was Jenny Hollingsworth, and um, Jeff calls Mike and says, "Now you can't tell them the story because to this day I don't think he knows the truth. How did you do that, Mike? How in the world?" Um, did you like run six minute miles? Like, this just, there's no way. And Mike never conceded the truth, so <laughs> Jeff's probably still wondering, but he did catch a lot of bass that day, and that is his thing. So um, I start with that story just to the reminder that perception is not always reality. And it certainly was not that day. And as we re- read this today, a lot of it's gonna sound familiar because last week Rosemary was telling us the plan that Naomi was proposing, and then now. It's Ruth um, acting out that plan. And so as we see this scene at the threshing floor, at first glance, um, it could look like this is questionable. She's going there in the middle of the night, laying down at his feet. We talked about all that. And um, even more so, if you look at other places in the Bible where the threshing floor is mentioned, actually in Hosea, it talks about how it was sometimes known for prostitution. We also know that this story took place in the time of the judges when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We also know that Ruth is from Moab, whose beginnings were a father who got drunk and slept with his daughters. So it certainly was a time of, um, of sexual sin, of all kinds of sin, but the Bible doesn't mince words when those things take place, right? And so we look at this story, we see that he, you know, she laid at his feet, we see that he prayed a blessing over her, so we have to take God at his word. And so as we look at this today, um, with that in the the foreground of our minds, um, let's take a look at the threshing floor. So throughout the Bible, the threshing floor speaks of both separation and of sacrifice. It was used that way for agriculture, but it was also a symbol of that for us as believers, of the useful versus the worthless. It was at the threshing floor where Gideon hid himself and God commissioned him for service. Jesus used the analogy of the threshing floor when he told Peter that Satan sought sought to sift him like wheat. And now that's where we find Ruth and Boaz in our story today. So we're going to pick up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 6. I'm just going to read our text for today. It says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For, you, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing, I will redeem you. Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So A on your outline, what were Ruth's actions? She followed the plan that Naomi had put in place. We see that um, humble and submissive spirit in her, and she followed Naomi's instructions very carefully. And one of those first instructions what required her, number one on your outline, she waits. Her first action was to wait, and that could almost seem contradictory, but she had to wait on the right timing. She waits until Boaz is asleep. The men would winnow in the daytime, and then at night they would sleep to protect um, their harvest. And she creeps up, probably her heart beating wildly, as you can imagine in that moment, um, probably fear, but also excitement about what God would do. And he says, behold, he notices her. She has his attention. And number two on your outline, she responds with humility. Again, she says, I'm your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, Nowadays in our society, it's not that uncommon that you know a woman might ask a man on a date. But back in this time, it was probably completely unheard of. And she's not asking him on a date. She's proposing that he propose to her. So it's a pretty big deal, a pretty bold move. And um, Warren Wearsby says this. He says, Ruth had come under the wings of Jehovah God. Now she would be under the wings of Boaz, her beloved husband. What a beautiful picture of marriage. But she didn't know that yet. She didn't know that it was going to work out that way. Um, to to explain a little bit of the Hebrew here, under his wings, in the Hebrew is the same word for cloak, and so the words actually translated wing. So wing and cloak basically in this story, you can you can repeat the synonyms. And in Boaz's speech in Ruth two twelve, when he prayed a blessing over her, I just want to go back to that that we read in one of our first weeks together, um, Ruth chapter two verse twelve. It says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz uses that language with her there, and then now she's essentially using that language back with him. It was a Jewish custom at that time that the bridegroom would cover the bride with a special cloak, and he would use these words, from now on, nobody but myself shall cover thee, symbolizing protection. And my husband and I had the opportunity to attend a wedding last December that had actually been scheduled for June and then scheduled for July. And then they just went for it in December. And um, it was a a Christian young lady marrying a Messianic Jew. And my husband and I and our daughters were there. And we got to see this firsthand as at the end of the ceremony, um, the groom had been wearing the towelette. And at the end, he wrapped it around the shoulders of his bride to symbolize them becoming one. And it was just this beautiful symbol. There was other um, traditions they did that day that um, the Jewish traditions are just beautiful to study sometime. But that, that's one that's really important to our story today. So what was Boaz's reaction be on your outline? What was Boaz's reaction? Number one, he called down blessings. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. When he says this kindness is greater than the previous kindness, he's talking about how she was so committed to Ruth. That was unheard of at that time. She had earned a reputation by that sacrificial decision. He sees her as virtuous. Um, He also is basically saying that it's amazing that she's not going after the young bucks like she could have she probably could have had her choice like so many other young girls might have done. So he calls down that blessing on her. Um, But number two, he proposes a plan. He makes a plan and he says he will do all that she asks. And this is why it says, now my daughter do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are worthy women. That was his response in verse 11, not just because he's attracted to her, but because of her integrity because of her character, um, the virtue that she possesses. He basically says, you're a bride worth winning. I want, I want this too. But he wants to go about it, number three on your outline. He desires to follow the right plan. He wants to follow the plan. He says, now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And if I can't remember if it was in your homework, but in Deuteronomy 25, verse 12, if you want to jot that down, That's where this process was described that makes provision for the closest family member to a childless widow to marry her, to give that deceased spouse a child to carry on their name. That was huge in those times. And if that next of kin didn't accept the responsibility, then it would be the next next of kin. And so again, we see the character of Boaz just shining through here. He wanted to go about things the right way. Warren Wearsby, this quotes in your book says, in the responses of Boaz to Ruth, We see how the Lord responds to us when we seek to have a deeper fellowship with him. Just as Boaz spoke to Ruth, so God speaks to us from his word. It's a beautiful picture. See on your outline what was Boaz's character? Again, he tells her, remain for the night, but in the morning, um, this is my plan, but but get up before people see you leaving. Mm -hmm. He's not only showing concern for her reputation, because it, it didn't look good, People could make assumptions, and he wanted to protect her, but he also wanted to protect her physically. Remember, it was a time when people did what was right in their own eyes, and she could have easily been assaulted leaving there in the middle of the night. So he shows concern for her reputation, her character, but also her physical well being. So, Boaz's character number one, he was a rule follower, following the rules. How many are rule followers in here? Do we have the rule followers? Um, I'm I'm one of those. You probably guessed that. But um, notice his sense of rightness. Every rule follower has to have a close friend that's not, though. It makes life interesting. Um, I won't mention any names about my friend Stephanie that subs sometimes. Um, Notice his sense of rightness, providing a gift, sealing the agreement, giving a gift that shows his acceptance, making sure everything is done according to the law, at least tradition. And though she probably admired and respected that about him, she probably, I mean, she's human, wanted a yes at that moment, right? So he's reassuring her through this gift. Two, he took leadership. He quickly and efficiently comes up with a plan, and he has, wisely waits until the perfect moment to execute it. He shows patience. And that's really what the, the overarching idea is today, is the concept of waiting, the waiting rooms of life that God puts us in that we probably would not choose otherwise. And Hudson Taylor says this, he says, I cannot read, I cannot think, I cannot even pray, but I can trust. There are moments in life where um, there's no words to express, um, and you feel like you you can't even pray, but we love it. There's that verse that tells us the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words can't express, and so we just wait before God, and we trust. So Ruth safely returns home to Naomi, and you can imagine she was the anxious mother-in-law waiting to hear every detail, also waiting because it was her plan. She, she had a vested interest of knowing if she had a good plan. Um, and Ruth walks in, verse 16, it says, When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn. That's my favorite verse in all of our passage today. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Waiting until we learn, really hard, really hard, a lot easier to say than to do, but that's really the theme throughout this whole book. God's timing, our actions, God's actions on our behalf. Um, There's an old song that says, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Know that he's good, even when life looks like he may have missed a detail. He never does. He's our sovereign God. He's our loving Father. It's one of the most difficult things to do, to wait. But what he does in us while we wait is often just as important as what we're waiting for. So what are some of the principles um, while we're waiting? Um, A, on your outline, why should we wait? Again, because we need to learn to trust God's ability to accomplish what he desires in his way and in his time. His ways are higher than our ways. If you think about his ways being higher, you think about the perspective you have when you're up high looking down on a situation. Um, We might think that we have the best seat in the house to our lives, but he sees all the details. He sees how it all fits together, not just for our good, but for the good of those around us. And Ruth had done all she could do. She had worked long. She had taken a risk, and she boldly put her fear aside. And now it was time to sit back and to trust. And like Esther was waiting for three days before going to the king, which, by the way, um, I think Linda Fuller noticed this, the last time I subbed for Rosemary, it was Esther in the waiting period. So when Rosemary gave me this lesson, it was the concept of waiting, and I'm like, okay, God, is there something that you're wanting me to learn? So maybe this is all for me. But we see how that turned out for Esther, and we're going to see soon how that turns out for Ruth, the concept of waiting He is so much better able to manage our lives. God is love. And love and hurry are like oil and water. They don't mix. My worst moments as a wife, as a mom, as an employee, as a friend, are when I'm in a hurry, when I'm running late, um, when I'm behind on an unrealistic to-do list, um, trying to cram too much into our day. And we can just um, say things we don't mean, and most of all, quite possibly, don't you think God probably has divine appointments throughout our day that if our schedule is so full, we may not even see? We completely miss those opportunities. So um, we have to intentionally look at our days, our schedules, and really design your days, allowing time for God to do his thing. Um, while we should run to God um, for, his, for our salvation, um, the Christian life is walking with God. We don't ever see him in a hurry. He had more to do than any of us, Um, and throughout the New Testament, we see so many pictures of him, and the only time we see just a symbol of of God running is when he runs to who? The prodigal son. That's the time he runs, when he runs to us, but our walk with God um, should be just that, not hurrying, not worrying, but relying on him. And um, I'm really good about, I would have put this up on the PowerPoint, but I didn't find it until just before, but I'm really good about recommending books to other people that I think would be great that I haven't actually read. (laughs) So, um, because I'm in a hurry. So this book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. Has anyone read this? So maybe we shall read it. I gave this to two friends who have read the book and said, thank you so much for recommending that. I'm so glad. What was your favorite part? And I'm like, I haven't read it yet. So I decided that I was going to read it. I thought, this file say, that was kind of my action point. for that. I'm going to read this book. So I go on Amazon to order it. It's a number one bestseller in religious faith. And right underneath it, we have the summary of the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's in the category High Speed Reads. And it says, you know, basically... If we look at the back, this book breaks down all the big ideas and pertinent facts in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry so they can be easily and quickly understood. <laughs> there is also an analysis and action plan, bonus, included that will help you on your journey. Continue reading below to see all that you get. Note, this is an unofficial an independent summary, an analysis meant to be a companion, a supplement, not a replacement. Uh, in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, were told, tells us exactly why hurrying is a waste of time and how it takes away from your life. With his friendly and approachable manner, he lays out how slowing down can bring you closer to God and a life that you are happy to call your own. Inside this book, time-saving chapter summaries, important facts to recap each chapter summary, discussion questions to get you thinking, an action plan to get you started fast. And I thought, <laughs> this is just, this is too good not to share. I mean, it was really like, really? Um, a speed read of the ruthless elimination of hurry, that is the culture that we live in, ladies. But if I can confess, I almost bought it, almost bought it, but I didn't, I, uh, I did not. I'm going to buy the other one, but I, did, I thought about it for a second. So we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our lives, um, so maybe we should read the book and find out. Hey, let me know what you find out. I might not have read the book by the time you read it. You guys will probably go and read it, and I won't have ordered it yet. Um, B, when should we wait? It's close to why, but when we know that we have done all that we can or should do. And sometimes there's someone better able to equip and equipped to deal with the situation, like Boaz in this example. He takes over at this point. There's a season to work, and there's a season to wait. And just think of the whole context of this story is agriculture. And what do we learn from agriculture? That there's a time to plant the seed, there's a time to water it and wait, and then there's a time for harvest. So Ruth had, had literally done work in the field. She had done work in carrying out Naomi's plan, and now it was her time to wait. Not trying to manipulate, not trying to control, but instead she waits. So see, how do we wait? Warren Weersby says, sit still was Naomi's counsel to Ruth and wise counsel it was. How hard it is for us to sit still especially as when we always want to multitask. My husband he will want to watch a movie, and I want to fold laundry while we watch the movie. He's like, can you just watch the movie? I'm like, well, I don't like the movie you picked, so that's why I'm folding laundry. But we always want to be doing two things at once. And just to sit still can be one of the hardest things we do. And I was reminded of just how hard that is for me. Um, how many North Carolina lovers do we have? I feel like there's so many people that love to get away to the mountains. That's kind of a Floridians happy place. And we usually get up twice a year. And we were up there after that wedding we went to in December. We went up with some friends. And how many of you, if you drive, you're, you're going northbound 95 for the most part. And you see those southbound lanes, a lot of Floridians probably coming back home into Florida through Georgia. And it's just so many times, standstill traffic or very, very slow. And we go, oh, look at those poor people. Like, oh, that's awful. And then it's like, yeah, remember that was us, like the last time. And so one time we just said, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to go through Atlanta on the way home. We got this figured out. So, um, I mean, Atlanta, what could go wrong? So we did the bypass of Atlanta. We actually didn't run into any traffic, but we went an entire, like, I think it's like over an hour out of our way. But we were like, we are beating the system. We are not going to be those people in that traffic. So um, this time, I was the only one who really had to be back the next day. And so I kept getting conned to staying a day later and a day later. And so we really needed to get home fairly early Sunday evening. And um, here we are. We've gotten, like, almost through South Carolina. Like, we did it. We did it. And then you just see a bunch of red lights in front of you. And I don't know how many of you guys have the Waze app, but um, it basically usually will give you an alternate route. Um, It will tell you the situation that you're in. You know, it's other people that use the app say, I'm in an accident, I'm in standstill traffic. Well, I went on the app and it said standstill traffic, and I kept following it it for 10 miles. And I was like, oh, this is not good. So then I'm looking at the alternate routes, and there is no alternate route. I mean, you can take a country road, and you're going to go probably two hours out of your way. So we sat there, and we sat, and I think, I mean, it was probably a good solid two hours of just waiting. But you just feel so trapped, and you feel so out of control. And in those moments, um, easily, we can um, it can bring out our character. It can bring out our impatience and show us what we need to work on. And um, sometimes, our kids can be like a little Holy Spirit in our lives, right? And um, they're plugged into the phone, so they don't really care. They probably didn't even notice the car was stopped. But my little one took off her headphones, and she said, Mommy, maybe we should pray for the person that's probably in an accident. And I was like, oh that's what we should be doing. So we did. We stopped and prayed. So a little child shall lead them. So, um, but how do we use that time wisely? How do we wait well? And maybe when we learn to wait well, we won't have to wait as much. Maybe. I don't know. Um, Number one, during that time, be available to learn any lessons God might want to teach. Be available to learn any lessons God might want to teach. How can we become better during that time? Again, what he does in us during that time can be just as important as what we wait for. It's preparation for the next season. Two, we learn more about him by using the time to learn more about his character. It's such an opportunity to search scripture. Um, what did biblical characters learn about God while they were waiting? And as you, I love that this is the, the living word of God that you may have been a Christian for a long time, and you may have heard these stories many times, but at different points, there's dip, different applications or different things that stand out. And in God's word, there's, there's too many to, to even begin to do an exhaustive list, but if you look at it, Abraham waited to be a father. Joseph waited to be released from prison. Hannah and many, many other women waited for a child, especially a son. Job waited through suffering. David Waiting to be appointed king at the appointed time. Meanwhile, while the king was trying to kill him, um, and even Jesus waiting to begin his earthly ministry, there was people that pushed him and wanted to propel him forward. You're taking too long, and he said, "My time has not yet come. I'm on the Father's time schedule, not my own." And he was Jesus. So we learn how to um, use that time and build our own character, and remember that we're not alone. We follow those greats and how God used them. And his word and how he can use us today number three we use the time to minister to someone else it's a great way to make use of your time and to serve the needs of others at your church right here at sheridan house um, or another ministry Um, i had a friend who um, went through um, an unplanned pregnancy and um, gave her baby up for adoption and it's an amazing story for another time but she decided that during some of her single years that she was going to teach abstinence education to kids here in broward county And so she used her story, and she waited well, and God blessed her. So in the waiting, how can you serve? And you never know who you're going to meet when you're serving, that God would bring someone in your path to encourage you and um, take steps forward in your life. Four, use the time to pray. I love this quote by Corrie Ten Boom. "Is Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel? or your spare tire? Is it your first resort, or is it your last resort? And I, I am guilty of this, and probably most every person in this room at some point is, of saying, well, all we can do now is pray, and that's really all we can ever do. God allows us to think sometimes that we have a little bit of control, but we really don't, and prayer should be our very, very first thing, not our last resort. It should be our steering wheel and not the spare tire. Um, many of you probably saw the movie War Room. Do you guys remember that movie with Priscilla Shire? Um, that's, that's also on my to-do list after um, this lesson is just to watch that movie again. I remember watching it and thinking, I'm going to clean my clothes out of my closet, and I'm going to have a prayer room. And if you haven't seen the movie, that's the basis. Um, there's a, a young woman going through a difficult marriage, and God places Miss Clara in her life to teach her how to pray and to realize that her enemy wasn't her husband, that it was Satan. And so she teaches her how to pray. And this is a quote from Miss Clara. It says in her closet, that's my wall of remembrance. And when things aren't going so well, I look back on it, and I'm reminded that God is still in control, and it encourages me. Whether you clean out your closet and do a prayer closet, whether you have a journal, Um, Even if you're not a big journaler, I'm personally not. I still write down like a sentence or a bullet point. I try to each day. And then I look back at that on those times to borrow upon God's faithfulness in the past for the future, remembering how good he is. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Strengthening your spirit as you wait, filling up on the things of his word and not of this world. The world wants to feed us so many lies and God's word is our truth. It's our map for life. So now the part we've been waiting for, Boaz redeems Ruth. We arrive at the last chapter of Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, now Boaz has gone up to the gate and sat down there. A, what's the significance of the gate? The gate played an important role in the life of ancient Israel. It wasn't just the entry into the city or the town. It's mentioned numerous places in the Bible. Even in Proverbs 31, as that chapter describes what's known as the Proverbs 31 woman, it says that her husband, that he is a husband of a woman of worth, sits at the gate, meaning that the husband's a leader because of her and because of all she does. Um, number one, it was a place of politics; they had politics back then—the place where kings would sit and hold court occasionally. It was where the leaders of the town would gather to do business. Um, not only politics, but number two, it was a place for legal business people who sought justice, um, a place of socializing. Um, we're going to see the business that Boaz does there in just a few minutes. You could kind of, if you need a picture of it, kind of like your, maybe a town council meeting. Number th- or, or, Be on your outline, now court is going to convene. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So number one, Boaz waits. Ruth waited, and now Boaz is waiting. And he's sitting down. I thought that was an interesting detail. The word sit is like three times in there. So it's interesting. He doesn't go bang on the man's door. He waits for him to arrive. He's got like a steady patience. And We don't know if the men gathered at a certain time of day and he kind of knew he would be on his way um, or how long he could have been waiting there, but he sits down and um, Boaz is waiting so that number two, Boaz does everything legally and honorably, legally and honorably. We learn that in verse two, he gathers 10 elders and the elders exercise judicial functions. You can see them more described in the Old Testament, how far reaching the power was that the elders possessed. Their importance was such that any transaction that was witnessed by them was of impeachable validity. So they had an important role. Boaz wants to make sure that the decision made at this moment sticks. We're not sure completely of the significance of the number 10. We do know from later on in Jewish history, we learned that 10 were needed to give wedding blessings and that also 10 were required for a legal quorum. So he has these 10 witnesses. Um, C, the case is presented. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So it's interesting that it's the first time mentioned that the land that Naomi was selling. How did Boaz know that? Um, We have to always remember that as we look at these four short chapters, that there was a lot of life that happened in between them. Obviously, there had been some conversation at some point that indicated that. So he shares that. Um, And number one, Boaz reveals his thoughts. He said, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. It's interesting in the King James version of this passage, um, it would say, Boaz would say, I advertise thee. I'm letting you know. This land's on the market for you. You're the next of kin. Um, it actually means to uncover your ear. I want to acquaint you with the facts. So he was very straightforward. But he uses a clever plan. That's number two. Boaz uses a clever plan. He advises him to buy the land. He was very shrewd on his part. Um, he didn't want people to think later that, um, that he was trying to talk him out of something. So he had obviously thought through it carefully. At this point, he hasn't mentioned Ruth at all he focuses the man's attention on the property. And at that time, A, on your outline, family land is very, very important. Family land is very important. This is a little bit foreign to us in the 21st century, but the land was so important to the Jewish people that if a man had a hard time and had to sell his land, he actually had the right to redeem it later when he could afford it. So the sale would actually be deemed temporary if he was able to buy it back. That's how big a deal it was. Um, comparable a little bit to the old manor houses in England, how a family would live in a section of a decaying house just to keep it in the family name. So Boaz makes available to the closest relative the available land. And B, he's always candid. He's honest. We see in verse 4, he wants the relative to know that if he's not going to buy it, that if he's not going to redeem it, that Boaz is going to redeem it. He doesn't cover his intentions. So at first, that next of kin um, responds very favorably. And then Boaz says, by the way, there's one other small thing. In verse 5, he says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. When you buy the land, you have to marry Ruth. And at this point, um, his tune changes a little bit. Um, Three, the kinsman's response. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. No way was he going to get involved in all this, endanger his own name and his own inheritance. Um, if he just bought the land, it would enhance his holdings. But when he would marry Ruth, it would diminish his holdings, because they would be in the name of Ruth's family. The bottom line here is that he was interested in protecting his wealth and promoting his own name, not someone else's, and there's some beautiful lessons in all of this. D, what are the lessons to be learned? Number one, the importance of family. Boaz honors the dead and shows kindness to the living. He could care less about whose name the land is in, and God honors him ultimately by bringing him into the genealogy of David and ultimately the Messiah. He's in the line of Jesus. The family who begat who was very, very important in those Old Testament times, throughout the Old Testament. And isn't it interesting that that first kinsman redeemer, who was so worried about his notoriety, his name is buried in oblivion. We don't even know his name. It's not mentioned here or anywhere else that we're aware of. We don't even know his name. So it's God who promotes. We can try to promote ourselves, and in the end, it's God who promotes his sovereign hand. Two, The focus should be on others. What a lesson that we must learn not to always be promoting our own interests and focusing on the needs of other instead. Um, When we do that, we open the door for God to deal with our needs rather than us trying to take care of our own lives. Jesus said in Mark 35, he said that the one that desires to be first will be last. Um, We see leadership in the world as making it to the top, but it's just the opposite in the spiritual realm. Jesus washed feet. When he showed the disciples how to be leaders, so it Boaz instead is the one that he puts himself last, and he shows kindness and generosity to two underdogs. Even though he wants to, he's also being submissive to God's plan. And isn't it interesting that Boaz would know the power of redemption? Because you know who Boaz's mother was. Anybody know? His mother was Rahab the prostitute. And you look at what God did with Rahab's story, taking her from being a prostitute to her ending up being in the line of Jesus. Boaz knew the power of redemption, and he was about to be a part of Ruth's redemption. E, what was Boaz's response? Verse seven, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now, this can seem strange to us, and especially when you think about they didn't have paved robes, and so their feet were very dirty. So I'm sure the shoe was very dirty, but it caught. It was the, a symbol for them. And it was a symbol, number one, it was a transfer of rights to confirm what had been agreed upon. The man took off his shoe and handed it to the other. It was unusual but it attracted attention. Maybe it was like a handshake would be for us. Um, in verse 8, the man says you have the land and the woman, and then Boaz responds with these words in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day, and I have bought the land from the hand of Naomi, and all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. So number two, Boaz establishes witnesses. He begins by addressing the elders first and then the crowd that it had gathered. Um, Boaz wanted all to be present for this important day. There weren't court stenographers. So he wanted the transaction to be safe with so many witnesses. Although nothing was apparently written down, again, that a number of witnesses would establish its validity in the elders. He clearly spells out what he's doing, and he formally presents his intent and purpose. And number three, in all of this, in all of his dealings, we see that Boaz was a man of strength and diplomacy. He knows what he wants. He has a well-thought-out, shrewd plan. He follows the laws. He covers all his bases. He was not a a wimp, but he was also not a pushy tyrant. We found that perfect balance of strength and diplomacy. F the elders blessed the plan. Verse 11 says when all the people who were at the gate and the elders said we are witnesses may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel may you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whose Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Look at the response of the authority figures in Ruth and Boaz's life. They witnessed it, they wished it well, and they blessed it. And in summary, what a way to start a life together. The characteristic of Boaz, he thinks everything through, he does it right, and God blesses it. And I want to close by looking at the aspects of the prayer. First, he he prayed that she would have children like Rachel and Leah. Well, they're considered... Um, basically the mothers of the entire nation of Israel, um, fruitfulness. Again, kids were a huge, huge thing in their culture. Um, Boaz, again, in 11b, that he would be worthy in his area and city, that he be looked up to as wise and virtuous and successful. And then the third part of the blessing was that they be like the house of Perez, Perez, numerous, similar to the first blessing, remembering again that children were a sign of God's blessing to the Jew. And these prayers all came true, including the Messiah, our kinsman redeemer, being included in the genealogy of Ruth and Boaz. I want to take you back to that verse that um, I mentioned in the very first part of our lesson today, Ruth 2.12, where Boaz speaks to Ruth, and he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. While Ruth's ultimate refuge was in God, he gave her Boaz, too. And ultimately, here at the end, we see that Boaz became the answer to his own prayer. And I want to share a a true story that also demonstrates this same principle. Many years ago, in a little church in Oklahoma, each Sunday, a little boy with black curls would catch the attention of a woman named Geraldine at church. She would look at him longingly as he was just about the age her son would have been. She was a mother without a son, and he was a son without a mother, for he had lost his mom when he was just two years old. A few years later, God blessed Geraldine with another baby. And over a decade later, God blessed her with another son. After the passing of her first husband, she fell in love with the father of the boy with the little black curls. Though he was now a young man in college, she loved him as her own. Who would have thought that little boy she laid eyes on in church and surely had many encounters with in small-town Oklahoma would one day become her stepson and my dad? My granny Geraldine was a woman of faith who prayed for my dad and all of our family faithfully, and I believe that one day her greatest prayer for my dad will be answered, and is that is that he will allow the redeeming work of Christ to save him. As we come to a close... Remember that our Redeemer lives. Two of my favorite songs from 2020, which I bet I'll have a lot of concurring opinions, are Waymaker and The Blessing, straight from Scripture. He is our Waymaker, He is our miracle worker, He is our promise keeper. He's the light in the darkest of darkest nights. No matter the redeeming work that you long for personally, or for a family member, or for a situation, God is there. My dad probably wasn't even praying in church. I don't know that he's done much praying in his life. But God would give him a godly stepmother to replace a mom that he lost. She was an answer to her own prayer in his life and in her own. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And honestly, I'd never really thought about that story in that light until I was preparing for this. And when I read that verse that Boaz became the answer to his own prayer, God just reminded me of that story. God longs to gather us in. He longs to redeem us. But one of the saddest verses in scripture is found in Matthew 22:37. 37. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The story of Ruth is real, but it's also a picture of God's wondrous love for us, how he longs to gather us in. And sometimes we come to him for our salvation, but then we want to hold on to control of so many other things. And he says, just come under my wings, rest in me, find your protection and your provision under my wings. The same way that symbolism of the cloak with Ruth and Boaz. But just like Boaz thought that Ruth was a bride worth winning, God feels that same way about you and I. And I want to close with this verse in Isaiah 61, 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. There's that cloak again. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We are his bride, and we are going to the wedding supper of the Lamb, no matter what happens here on this earth. So may we rest in that, May we rest in our redemption, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and would we just trust him for that today while we wait on the things of this earth that we long for him to redeem? May you pray for us. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your steadfast love for us. Lord, I thank you for your example, that you would come down to us fully God, yet fully man, and even you knew what it was like to wait to wait to see your friend Lazarus raised from the dead, dead, to wait to start your earthly ministry. And God, I just thank you, Lord, that you are our father, you are our friend, you are our groom. And Lord, I just pray that each woman in here today, that you would just meet her at the very point of her need of whatever she needs most, Lord. And Lord, I just pray, God, that we would draw near to you, Lord, that we would seek you first above all things, And, Lord, that we would just rejoice um, in the glorious future of hope, but also spend our time well here, while we wait. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.